To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. Fade Up, Interior, Federal Reserve Building, Washington, D.C. Close on Jay Powell. Blue suit, purple tie, glasses slipping a bit down his nose. I think to get to that place where we feel comfortable starting the process, we need some confirmation that inflation is in fact coming down sustainably to 2%. And scene from American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. Wednesday, today, the last day of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. Fade up again. Black screen, white letters scrolling up from the bottom. Sustainably. Adverb. In a way that can be maintained at a certain rate or level. Dissolve. To press conference. Front row. A reporter takes the microphone. Gina Smiley from the New York Times. Thanks for taking our questions. Obviously, in the statement and just in your uh, remarks there, you note that you don't want to cut interest rates without greater confidence that inflation is coming coming down fully. I wonder, what do you need to see at this point to gain that confidence? Cut to Powell at the podium. Okay. So what are we looking for to get greater confidence? Um Let me say that we have confidence. We're we're, we're looking for greater confidence that inflation is moving sustainably down to 2%. Cut to Fed reporters taking notes. Camera pans slowly back to Powell. What do we want to see? We want to see more good data. Dissolve to live charts of the stock market. They're lower, but climbing on the question and Powell's answer. Back the camera goes to Powell. And a good example is inflation. So we have six months of good inflation data. The question really is, that six months of good inflation data, is it sending us a true signal that we are, in fact, on uh, a path, a sustainable path down to 2% inflation? That's the question. And the answer will come from some more data. Split screen, Powell and the reporter. And I'm sorry, if I could just follow up very quickly. When when you say that you want to make sure that it's a true signal. Is there anything that you're seeing in the data that makes you doubt that it's a true signal at this stage? No, I think it's, I, I would say it, it seems it seems to be the likely case that, that we will achieve that confidence, but we have to achieve it and we haven't yet. Fade to black, roll credits. My screenwriting inadequacies aside, that was basically the sum and total of today's Fed meeting. No rate cut, but they're thinking about it. Probably not at the next meeting, though. More data, just 
more, please. And they will talk to us again come the third week of March. Wall Street on this first Fed day of the year. A little cinematic, actually. They were not very happy. We will have the details when we do the numbers. Housing in this economy right now is challenging. I mentioned the latest numbers from Case Shiller yesterday. Home prices overall in this economy up better than 5% year on year. The average rate on a 30-year fixed is 6.7% or so. That is from Freddie Mac. Lower than the nearly 8% it hit last fall, yes, but suffice it to say, buying a home in this economy is still expensive. The alternative, of course, is just renting. More than a third of American households, in fact, are renters. And an increasing number of millennials say they plan to rent forever. You ask them why, and they say they can't afford to buy. And to boot, they like the renting lifestyle. That's according to the real estate site Apartment List. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab decided, though, to dig a little bit deeper. Sophie Kangas and Tom Mullison are stuck at a stalemate. The topic up for debate is whether the couple will ever buy a house. Yeah, well, it's something that I want to happen, and I think it is going to (laughs) happen. You sure about that? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Both are in their early 30s and live in Bellingham, Washington. They work in public schools and have been dating for eight years. The three of us are chatting on Zoom. And sometimes the conversation gets kind of awkward. Like, I ask what they would do if, say, their landlord sells the apartment. She says they'd move closer to her family. So he asks... But we buy or rent? We'd buy. We'd rent. No. <laughs> Dude, you don't know that area. These two have the, the should we buy a house buy. talk a few times a year. And they've never agreed. So they continue the status quo of renting. Plus, they love where they live. They'd have to move to a different town to afford a mortgage. And that's the reality for many renters. Between housing prices and mortgage rates in 2023, it was more expensive to buy than it was to rent in 46 of the top 50 U.S. metros, according to Redfin data. Ellen Wickham has always been a renter. She's 59, works in accounting, and lives in western Massachusetts. She says she recently looked into buying, but life got in the way. My father passed away very quickly. Her mother passed away not long after. Meanwhile, Wickham's marriage was falling apart. She no longer felt safe at home. And so I left with $4 in my pocket. It was an emergency situation that I needed to find housing She eventually landed a three-bedroom duplex for about $900 a month, which she says is a great deal. And she likes renting, not just because of the cost, but because as a single woman and an empty nester, buying feels intimidating. I was very, very daunted about living alone at this age again. I've stayed here for much longer than I anticipated, but it's been a great decision. Wickham likes that she doesn't have to, say, fix the water heater if it breaks. And that's something a lot of renters talk about, the responsibility that comes with owning. Some people don't want the burden and prefer the flexibility of renting. Like Nina Sokolova, she's 35 and a technology consultant in New York City. She earns enough that she can afford to buy, but she chooses to rent. Right now, I own maybe two suitcases of things. 
that are all replaceable. Sokolova moved to New York from Ukraine 15 years ago and has lived in 11 different apartments. She loves to decorate with a new theme every time she moves. My apartment is currently neon pink Barbie, decorated with 100 balloons, the weirdest lamps you have ever seen, and a prince's bed. Sokolova plans on renting forever. To boost her nest egg, she contributes a bigger portion of her paycheck to her retirement. She says once upon a time, she did want to own a home. I wanted a house in America, of course, with a beautiful garden. But as I get older, that dream doesn't seem like a dream anymore. The American dream. It's deeply tied to home ownership in this country. And it's really at the heart of Sophie Kangas and Tom Mullison's disagreement. It's a tough um, issue to deal with because there's really no compromise between renting and, and buying. Mullison feels bad, like he's holding his girlfriend back. He says for him, buying a home isn't a life goal. It, to me, it's just more, you know, having a roof over my head that I'm paying for in a different way. It's more than a logical decision for me. There's like emotions and goals and heart associated with that. Kinga says she just won't feel like a real adult until she owns a home. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. If you miss something on the actual radio, there's a way to catch up. We've got a podcast that'll get you everything you need. Marketplace.org is where you can get that, or you can follow us on the platform of your choice, of course. Kristen was just talking to and about renters who are in it for the long haul. The flip side of that coin, of course, is buying. And if you're going to be a homeowner, at some point, that means you got to get into the housing market. And that gets us to today's installment of our series, Adventures in Housing. My name is Monique Coleman. I live in Charlestown, West Virginia, and I'm a first-time homebuyer. I lived in Clarksburg, Maryland, and that is the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So I looked up and down all the way around <laughs> every place in Maryland. And when I tell you the, pl- the places that were in my price range, they were like shoeboxes. I'll never forget the day that we decided to go to West Virginia. We looked at a house and it was dilapidated. I told my real estate agent, thank you, but no thank you. And we got in the car and we started trekking up 340, which is the bridge that changes Maryland to West Virginia. I got here through one of my friends who said, hey, why don't you get new construction? So, of course, I go, new construction? I'm fancy. We're fancy. So I told my daughter, let's build a house. And she goes, oh, let's build a house. I think about home ownership and being a Black female, what that's like. For me, it means a few things, right? It means empowerment. And it means opportunities, 
because I know that as a result of me being a homeowner, in the event, if I need to take money out, I can do that. I really moved because I needed a way to send my daughter to college. And as a single parent, I didn't have the funds. I'm still paying off student debt, right? And I did not want that to be the case for her. As a result of me knowing that I can do this, I'm thinking forward. So what happens when she goes to college? Do I stay? Do I flip it? And do I go somewhere else? Or do I keep this as rental property? Like my whole outlook is totally different now. My daughter says, I know you moved to Charlestown, West Virginia for me, but ah, she will never admit that she that we are happy. Honestly, it doesn't matter if my daughter comes around or not. We are here to stay at least for the next four years. And then after that, we'll see what happens. Monique Coleman in Charlestown, West Virginia for at least the next four years. Then we'll see what happens. No matter how long it takes, this series only works with you. Tell us, would you, about your adventure or adventures in housingmarketplace.org is where you do that. Coming up. Routing for cycling is a tricky thing. Cycling, biking, whatever you want to call it, getting from here to there can be a challenge. First, though, let's do the numbers. Yeah, the Wawa's. Thank you, Jay Powell. The Dow Industrial is down 317 points today, about 8 tenths percent, 38,150. The Nasdaq down 345 points, 2 and 2 tenths percent, 15,164. Thank you, tech sector in this economy. The S&P 500 gave back 79 points, 1 and 6 tenths percent, 48 and 45. Thermo Fisher Scientific, which makes everything from lab equipment to gene therapy products, had its earnings call today. It exceeded analyst expectations by reporting a fourth quarter profit of 1.6 billion American simoleons. Nonetheless, because capitalism was down nearly 5%. Several other companies that make medical equipment also reported today. Roper Technologies, which makes accessories for ultrasound equipment, among other things, dropped 4.4%. Boston Scientific, you heard of them, right? Maker of a lot of equipment used in cardiac and vascular treatments. Also those scary robotic dogs, up 3%. ConMed Corporation, manufacturer of surgical tools, rose 8 tenths of 1%. Here's the bond market, though. Bond prices rose. People were buying them. That sent the yield the other way. The yield on the 10-year T-note down to 3.9 or 2%. You're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. Maybe the only industry hotter than artificial intelligence right now, AI litigation. The Authors Guild is suing OpenAI and Microsoft, with writers like George R.R. R. Martin and Jody Picot among the plaintiffs. The New York Times is suing, too, OpenAI and Microsoft as well. Getty Images is suing the AI image company Stability AI. And at the heart of these cases is the allegation that those companies illegally used copyrighted works to train their AI models. The volumes and volumes of words and images produced by actual real working people that ChatGPT and Dolly and the rest of them learn from. Marketplace's Matt Levin has more on the ethics and the economy of AI training. 
You know, back in the day when your mother told you to be careful about what you put on the internet because the internet is forever? Well, forever has a name, Common Crawl. Common Crawl is a copy of the internet. It's a 17-year archive of the internet. We make this freely available to researchers, academics, and companies. Rich Screnta heads the nonprofit Common Crawl Foundation. Since 2007, it saved 250 billion web pages, all as downloadable data files. Until recently, some of its biggest users were academics, exploring topics like online hate speech. And then generative AI came along. I've been told by researchers that LLMs would not exist if it were not for Common Crawl. LLMs stand for large language models, the algorithms behind AI like ChatGPT. LLMs need to ingest huge chunks of text to learn the rhythm and structure of language so they can write your term paper or wedding vows for you. Google, Meta, and OpenAI all use versions of Common Crawl in their early AI research. So I asked Grant to what a lot of journalists are wondering these days. Am I in there? I hope so. Don't you want to be? Maybe not, if it means my write-up about the trade deficit teaches a robot how to write about the trade deficit. I mean, it would be a shame if you weren't. Unless your 2009 Glee fan fiction blog is paywalled or has code telling Common Crawl to avert its eyes, it's pretty likely to be in there, although there's no easy way to look it up. After ChatGPT came out, Scranta says there's been a big jump in requests to be removed from Common Crawl which he says is misguided. Even if you never consented for your copyrighted work to be ingested by robots. You posted your information on the internet intentionally so that people could come and see it. And robots are people too. Hey, just like corporations. Now, Common Crawl isn't the only text used to train AI. Researcher Luca Soldani at the nonprofit Allen Institute for AI says we used to know a lot more about what training data tech companies used. But that was before OpenAI got a $100 billion valuation. It's not in their interest to tell us what's in there, both from a competitive advantage, legal point of view. I asked a bunch of the big AI companies, OpenAI, Meta, Anthropic, whether any of my work was being used to, I don't know, feed my replacement robot. Only Google responded, basically saying it couldn't confirm or deny, but that web publishers can opt out of future AI training data. So Danny says if companies were forced to retrain their current AI models without copyrighted work, it would be incredibly costly and time-consuming. I would be shocked if it's less than months. Typically, one of these model, big model runs takes a few months. And without all that copyrighted work to learn from, the AI might just stink. Tech companies say taking copyrighted material to train AI is legally fair use, that AI systems should be able to read and learn from the Internet just like humans do. But beyond the legal debate, there's also an ethical one. Every single creator among us has grown up in the full knowledge and and in the full acceptance that when we create and when we put that out in the world, people will learn from that. Ed Newton-Rex is the founder of the startup Fairly Trained. We did not come into the game expecting large corporations to scrape that, train on it, create these scalable systems. None of this is part of the social contract. Fairly Trained certifies AI systems that only use training data licensed or approved by human creators. 
Newton Rex hopes the certification will allow consumers to decide which AI systems reflect their values, kind of like a fair trade sticker for robots. I don't think people realize that when they use something like ChatGPT, they are using um, you know, a model trained in this way and tra- trained on lots of people's output without, without their consent, often without their knowledge and without any compensation. He says he doesn't see any point to having your work in an AI model unless you're getting paid for it. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. I can assure you that the intelligence on the Marketplace Morning Report is 100% human. David Brancaccio and the gang getting out of bed early every day to bring you the economic and business news you need. Here, as in a lot of countries during the worst of the pandemic, when we were all feeling a little bit cooped up inside, there was a cycling boom. Bicycle sales in 2020 up 46 percent from 2019. And now there are more than 51 million cyclists out there competing with cars and trucks and buses for space on the roadways. But even if your city has the infrastructure for it, getting from point A to point B on two wheels is way more complicated than just punching something in on Google Maps. Laura Laker is a journalist in London, also a cyclist herself, writing about the topic at hand. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. What's it like uh, riding a bike in London? It's kind of a mixed experience. So the last few years, cycle routes have really, really increased massively in the city. And that's kind of been a process that started maybe 10, 12 years ago. But it's it's still quite patchy. So we've got some great cycle routes. I live in East London. I can cycle almost 12 miles to the Royal Albert Hall, which your listeners might have heard of, which is all on protected cycle lanes, pretty Hmm. much, or low traffic streets. But there's still definitely very scary roads in the city. And it really is a patchwork depending on where you live. Right. So depending on where you live and where you want to go. So you dial up Google Maps or whatever your navigation tool of choice is. And then what happens? And that's what what uh, I want to talk to you about. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a mixed picture. And again, it depends where you're going and where you start. But um, yeah, routing for cycling is a tricky thing, right? Because some of it's on the road. There is no particular cycle infrastructure. Some of it's even on pavements where you're allowed to cycle. And routing apps really struggle to deal with this complexity, added to the fact that different people ride different bikes. You might see someone in a wheelchair with a hand cycle, and you might see these great big cargo bikes coming around London. And we've got very old streets, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of cobbles. It really kind of adds to the complexity because certain routes certain people can deal with, certain barriers, some smaller bikes can get around, but larger ones can't. And so a routing app is basically having to deal with all of this complexity plus directness and speed. And it certainly doesn't work for everyone. And it certainly doesn't work in every situation. What what does it look like when when you dial up a a bicycle route on on Google Maps or whatever? What does it look like? I mean, does it tell you, oh, here's a big hill, look out, or these are cobblestones? Or is it all (laughs) just, you know, like you pull it up in your car and it points you in the right direction and you go, even though it's, you know, might (laughs) might not be the, you know, best road? It doesn't actually. There are apps that do. Um, Cycle Streets is one of them. And they have a base map onto which mm-hmm. they can basically crowdsource information from their users who are quite keen on, you know, helping other cyclists build 
will find good routes. But in terms of Google Maps, what you see now and the improvement that they made that I was writing about is partly to do with just the data they have on where the cycle routes are, because I don't think they were finding those routes before. They were mm-hmm. finding the main roads because, you know, they're faster, but they're unpleasant to cycle on. You're really having to dice with traffic. And so now you've got um, actually in the similar way that you would have if you're driving, you'd get data in a colored line on your route saying there's congestion. You get a colored line, which is green, saying there's a protected cycleway. So that's really helpful for people when they're trying to decide, can I cycle it? What's it going to be like? What's the best route for me? Right. On that on that issue of, of, you know, dicing with traffic, as you say, you and I were talking before we turned the microphones on and I shared that I, while I am a, a bike rider, I, I mountain bike ride because I'm not going to ride on the roads in Los Angeles because it just <laughs> scares the bejesus out of me. And, and safety is a real thing when you're planning a navigation route for a bicycle. It is. It is. And I've, I visited LA briefly once and I <laughs> did you ride was a terrified. Bike? I mean, did you ride no, a bike? I tried to, I tried to be a pedestrian, <laughs> but I think I was one of maybe three people walking. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I saw that. I saw the volume of cars. My taxi driver actually said, you know, um, his family had four or five cars and I think that's probably normal there, but you know, your experience just goes to show if there isn't the infrastructure, if right. you're having to deal with motor traffic, it doesn't matter how good your routing is you're not going to cycle and then most people aren't going to cycle. And still in the UK, I've been cycling in London for a good 15 years. And at first I was very much in the minority and especially as a woman. Mm-hmm. And I'm still in the minority, but it's definitely becoming a much more popular, much more mainstream thing. Transport for London, the body that runs mm-hmm. transport in London, released some statistics recently that um, in 2023, daily cycle journeys in London hit 1.26 million. There's Hmm. now as many people cycling as a a third of the tube network equivalent or a quarter of all bus passengers. Hmm. And so in terms of efficient use of of road space and efficient investment, because uh, let's face it, a cycle lane is far cheaper to build than a new tube line or a new station or a new road. You know, it's a fantastic investment. And I, I really think it's one of those fantastic things that mostly benefits for a city. Laura Laker, she's a journalist based in London, writing most recently for Bloomberg uh, about cycling and, and cycling navigation. Laura, thanks a lot. I, I appreciate your time. Thank you. This final note on the way out today, fade in one last time on Jay Powell. A question in voiceover about how the central bank's going to decide when it's got that confidence he was talking about. We do have a healthy uh, set of differences, and I think that's actually essential for making good policy. We're also able to reach agreement generally because we listen to each other, we, we compromise, and even though not everybody loves what we do, they're able to, for the most part, able to join in. To me, that's a that's a well-functioning public institution. Okay, for reals, fade to black this time. Today's credits, media production team is up. Brian Allison, Jake Cherry, Justin Dooler, Drew Jostad, Gary O'Keefe, Charlton Thorpe, Juan Carlos Torado, and Becca Weinman. Jeff Peters is the manager of media production. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves. 
but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Khreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.